Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. There have been a number of major developments involving carbon cap and trade markets in recent months as governments move to limit carbon emissions that drive climate change. The biggest came in December when China formally announced the establishment of a national carbon trading system that will initially cover its electric power industry. Once China's market is up and running, it'll dwarf the largest existing cap-and-trade market, the European emissions trading system that started in 2005. Developments are underway in the U.S. as well. In January, New Jersey announced that it will rejoin the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, commonly called REGI, which it had previously abandoned. And Virginia has stated its intention to also join the carbon market, which spans nine northeastern states. But just how successful has cap-and-trade been in achieving its primary goal of cost-effectively limiting carbon dioxide emissions? On today's podcast, we'll look at the climate impact of cap-and-trade. We'll also discuss the impact of cap-and-trade programs on the competitiveness of industries and countries they cover and at implications for the future. Here to discuss cap-and-trade is today's guest, Arthur Van Bentham. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Arthur is a faculty fellow with the Climate Center for Energy Policy and assistant professor of business economics and public policy at the Wharton School of Business. So, Arthur, again, it's great to have you on the show. And, and I know much of your work focuses on the effectiveness of environmental policies. I wonder if we could start uh, just by having you talk a little bit about the issues you research and the link to cap and trade. Sure, yes. So I do a lot of work on the effectiveness, but also the unintended consequences of environmental policy. So you could think about um, fuel economy standards for cars, uh, energy efficiency regulations. And what's interesting is that sometimes they're poorly designed, even if well-intentioned, and uh, firms and consumers find smart ways to avoid them. And cap-and-trade is actually an example of, at least in theory, a really effective uh, policy. So in that sense, it's exciting that there's a lot of global developments towards more uh, carbon pricing, specifically cap-and-trade. So, so can you tell us, uh, in, in a nutshell, exactly how does cap-and-trade work and how does it limit carbon emissions? Yeah, so the way it works is that a government or a regulator sets a cap, a maximum amount of, let's say, CO2 emissions for a country. So let's say, uh, as an example, uh, 100 tons. So then the, there, uh, these 100 tons are distributed. There's 100 allowances, the rights to emit a ton of CO2. They're uh, distributed uh, to firms. So it could be there's 10 firms. uh, Each of the firms receives uh, 10 allowances. Now, that doesn't mean, even though at the end of the year, each firm needs to make sure it has enough allowances to exactly cover its emissions that year, it doesn't mean that every firm has to emit exactly 10. If, If some firm is very clever and finds cheap ways to reduce its emissions below 10, it has a surplus of allowances, which it can then sell to a different firm, which can emit a little bit more because maybe for them it's harder or costlier to do re- uh, emissions reductions. Nevertheless, the total is fixed at 100. And the beauty of this system in theory is that it kind of lets the market, the firms sort out um, who can do the emissions reductions uh, in the cheapest possible way. 
there's no need for the government to have regulations and tell firms which technologies to use. The carbon market will provide the incentive to, to the cheapest options to happen first. So if one company can do it more cheaply, it can sell its excess credits to another company right. that can't do it as cheaply. And on a, an economy-wide basis, you get the cheapest possible reduction in those emissions. Yes. It's cost-effective in the sense that once you set a target for the whole economy, cap and trade will make sure that we achieve that particular target in the, at the lowest cost. So a lot's been going on with cap and trade lately, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast. Uh, China's establishing a national market. Uh, Reggie in the California markets, California being the biggest market here in the U.S., is, is growing as well. What's driving all the recent activity, particularly given the fact that the U.S. at a federal level seems to be much less inclined to do anything about climate at this point? Yes, that's, it's, it's almost contradictory, but in fact, it isn't. So the, the very fact that the federal government right now is, is kind of taking a backseat on climate policy um, encourages states that are actually uh, very motivated to, um, um, to act on climate, but also to develop um, clean tech industries. They have to move to the next best option now that federal policy is unavailable. And uh, joining an existing carbon trading system, so in the U.S. that would be either Reggie or California's market. Uh, California's market, by the way, is already linked to the Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec that are already expanding. Um, That is actually um, one of the most cost-effective ways for other states now to, um, um, to do their own carbon policy. Uh, the China system, of course, is very different. Um, China in recent years has, has been stepping up as, as a green leader in the world. Um, lots of investment in renewables. In that sense, pricing carbon fits that picture. Although, even while well, internationally the motivation is especially climate change, I think it's fair to say that China's motivation for cap and trade is maybe more reducing local air pollution that comes with reductions in greenhouse gases. So, so it really depends on the region, what the specific driver is, it sounds like it varies. So looking at the major carbon markets, uh, and I guess maybe we start with the largest to date, which is the European emissions trading system. Um, have these markets been successful? And again, the ETS in Europe has been around for over a decade now. Have they been successful truly in, in reducing carbon emissions? And reducing those carbon emissions more than might have happened otherwise with slowing economies or slowing electricity demand growth, et cetera? So this is a a very good but also complicated question. So there's a story almost behind every individual cap-and-trade system. So I think the way I would summarize it is, um, first of all, that this – this ideal situation in which cap and trade achieves the, the lowest cost reductions, uh, it works very well on paper, but it's been difficult in general to get these markets to work um, uh, sort of properly. It, it's taken a lot of time. So we can talk about individual examples, but for example, the European trading system in its early years had suffered from many market design failure, failures. Over time, we've been learning a lot. So, so the, the recent systems that have been introduced in, for instance, California, are much better designed. Um, they are avoiding some of the early mistakes that the Europeans made in their ETS. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of learning going on. So by now, I'm much more confident in saying that cap and trade is um, delivering on its promises, but it's taken a fairly long time to sort out how to do this properly. I wonder if we could dive into some of the details of those market design issues for just a moment. And, and you did refer to the, the pricing issues in the European market. I think uh, at one point, the price of the uh, permits in the European market went to 10, down to 10 euro cents, I, I believe. Whereas I, I think the market optimally would like to have something around $30. I think the Chinese market, when it starts out, what I've read is that they're going to be shooting for $7.50 per ton of carbon emitted. So, so how do, first off, how important is the price and the success of these markets in reducing the emissions? And how do you design these markets to, to get to that optimal price? Yeah, the price is the, the single most important indicator of success, right? The price signals to firms how valuable it is to engage in emissions reductions and invest in low-carbon technologies. And if a, if a cap-and-trade market is operating at a very low price, like Reggie, for example, is trading at $2 per ton, while most economists would argue that uh, a, a, a reasonable price on carbon would be indeed closer to 30 or 40 it means that um, the, the cap, there's a cap, but it's just very lax. It's very easy to meet. It's still met in a cost-effective way, but the cap itself is, is, is not enough to really provide incentives. In the EU ETS in the early years, the price went in essentially to zero. So one of the things that we learned is that um, when you set a cap, you have to know as the government pretty well what are firms actually emitting. And those measurement issues turned out to be harder than we thought. Uh, so after a, a year and a half of trading and the, the first results came in and the firms reported their emissions, and it just appeared that um, the market was totally flooded with allowances, even absent firms would have reduced emissions even absent that regulation. So it was basically had no teeth. Um, so, so price volatility in cap and trade markets is the major concern. Like sometimes it's close to zero. In other cases, it, it goes up to very, very high levels. It's a headache for firms. And um, regulators are now getting smarter in, in finding design features to, uh, to, to dampen that price volatility. Are there other key market design components that, that the regulators have to look into when they're putting these markets together? There's many. So I would say the mo probably the most important ones is you would like you might want to think about minimum and maximum prices in a cap and trade system. So this use not uh, they this is something that was not in place in the ETS for uh, for a long time, and that essentially allows the price to go from zero to uh, to very high levels. California has a much smarter design. So what they do is there's a minimum price in the system. Uh, currently, it's about $15 per ton, which is already getting to um, you know, levels that are closer to the economic damages of CO2. And that's based on social cost of carbon? Is that that's based, the social cost of carbon, it's a very contentious estimate. There's, there's wide-ranging opinions on what it should be, but a consensus value would be in the $40 range. So California has a minimum price. So basically, when they auction off new allowances firms uh, have to bid at least $15 in order to purchase allowances. 
Uh, that minimum price, by the way, is increasing uh, 5% above inflation every year. So in 10 years' time, even the minimum price in the system will be creeping up to an estimate that's close to the social cost of carbon. Um, so what that does, it, it provides much better incentives for firms to, um, uh, to act on, 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 on carbon. It's, it's much more profitable now to invest in low-carbon technologies. But it also reduces uncertainty. It's very difficult for a firm to make investment decisions if it's anyone's guess what the price is going to be. The political difficulty is now that this minimum price is almost starting to feel like a tax on carbon. Because you pay it no matter what. You pay right? it no matter what. Basically, if, it, if, the, uh, if the cap and trade is not functioning properly, you're kind of stuck at the minimum price. But then essentially the cap and trade has become a carbon tax. And this, there's a lot of um, sort of legal battles going on where chambers of commerce have sued le- regulators um, for saying you, you pitch this as a, uh, a so-called quantity instrument. Uh, you're regulating quantities, but essentially you're just imposing a tax. Let me ask you uh, just to take that one step further. So carbon tax is a dirty word. Cap and trade is not. Is that because that word tax is in there? So in the U.S., I think that matters quite a bit. I would say to me as an economist, cap and trade and carbon taxes are very similar instruments. To a lawyer, they're not. So that's why it really matters. But from, from my perspective as an economist, they both put a price on carbon. Um, with a carbon tax, you know for sure what the price is going to be. But then you're not entirely sure what emissions will be. Uh, with a cap and trade, you fix the emissions, but then you're not exactly sure what the price is going to be. But there are subtle differences. There are similar instruments. Um, politically, a carbon tax in the U.S. is hard because of the word tax, but also because cap and trade has this feature in which you can choose to give away some of the allowances for free to firms. That doesn't impact emissions. That's set by the cap, but it's implicitly giving back some money to industry to convince them to participate. So you might almost say it's kind of a discrete backdoor way to get industry on board uh, in a way that doesn't attract too much attention from consumer groups. And this, even though it sounds a bit cynical, but I think that also adds to the political feasibility of cap and trade over a carbon tax. You know, one of the issues that you alluded to just a few minutes ago when you talked about this this base price in California, for example, people would have to pay it, you know, carbon tax, et cetera, is, is what is the actual impact of this carbon price in cap-and-trades case on the industries and economies where it's imposed because presumably that raises the cost of doing business, might make employment more difficult in that area, it might drive some of these businesses elsewhere. What experience have we seen in Europe? And I'm also very interested to hear what has happened here with Reggie, which is the longest-running U.S. cap-and-trade program focused on New England, basically. Has there been a negative impact because of this? Yes. Again, this depends very much on the setting. It is by far the most one of the most political issues in cap-and-trade systems. So Reggie, to, to get to your last example first, is actually a market. It's just for electricity. So power plants have very limited abilities to, to claim to a regulator they're going to go to China when they're regulated. So it's actually a kind of a sector that is not 
at risk of moving to, you know, by first approximation. Easy to pick on. Easy to pick on. They typically get less generous allocations because they can't credibly claim that they're going to leave. The other thing about Reggie is that prices are very, very low. So what that means is that it's like if, if it didn't do anything, prices would be zero. But the fact that prices in Reggie are around $2 per ton kind of indicates that most of the emissions reductions would have happened anyway. Uh, in, this, in this case, mostly because of the shale gas that's replacing coal in electricity generation that would have happened for the most part by itself without any carbon market. Now, in the European Union, um, things are a little different um, because heavy industry is also part of the ETS, the emissions trading scheme. So let's say aluminum smelters or other heavy industrial facilities, um, they are potentially at risk of leaving the European Union and perhaps going to China. Uh, So what happens is that there's a special fund for at-risk industries. Uh, And these industries don't have to buy their allowances at auction. They rather receive them for free. Now, the academic literature actually suggests that this issue is very much overplayed. So there's, there's hardly any evidence that firms leave uh, in response to carbon prices that are below $50 per ton. Um, as politically uh, powerful this, this argument is and the, the threat of losing jobs, there's just very little substance economically in terms of evidence that that jobs have been lost and industries have moved. What's the actual specific track record of carbon reductions? And I kind of actually want to bring it back to Reggie. If the prices are so low, uh, what's the actual impact of of the market been? So on Reggie, I haven't seen a a specific study estimating, so what's the additional reduction relative to the business as usual? For the EU ETS, there have been many studies, um, in fact, suggesting that most of the emissions reductions in Europe were indeed due to the ETS and not due to other trends. So it actually has shown it's been effective. So the the evidence kind of, I would summarize the academic evidence as it's, it's shown to be effective and the, the impacts on jobs and um, relocation have been pretty moderate. Will these markets expand to include other parts of the economy? You said Europe already goes to industry. California's broader, I believe. How do they thread that needle in terms of bringing in more industries? Yeah, California is, pr- is probably the most comprehensive system. I think it covers um, over 80% of the state's uh, emissions. So it's power generation industry, but they also include transportation fuel, so refineries. Um, the European Union has tried to expand by, for instance, including airlines in the, um, in the ETS. Um, it's, there's, a, there's definitely a trend towards making these systems uh, broader. You know, one of the benefits of cap and trade, I understand, is it should, at least in theory, promote investment in cleaner technologies because it's cheaper at some point to invest in those technologies than it is in the credits or the allowances. What has the track record on that front been? So there, um, again, academics have have done research uh, mostly on the ETS in Europe. So um, the the question that they've looked at is is basically, do we see that firms that were regulated under the ETS 
um, applied for more patents with a low carbon or green technology angle. Now, the tricky thing, this is a very difficult question to answer because at the same time that the European Union trades carbon, there's also generous policies for renewable electricity. And even though there's a fairly large effect um, that you find a fairly large correlation between regulation and low carbon patents, it's very difficult to tease apart how much is due to the ETS versus, say, feed-in tariffs for renewable energy. So uh, I think that's still a bit of an open question in the, in the economics literature. So I think here's kind of the question we're, we're coming to is, what are the specific lessons from the experience of the past 10 or 12 years that can be applied to the growth of the markets that we have, the appearance of new markets such as those in China? Um, and, and I guess the extended question is, will cap and trade continue to be the most politically acceptable way of dealing with carbon emissions? So in terms of lessons, I think the, a very basic lesson is being that a, a, a working and credible system for data collection, monitoring, auditing uh, is absolutely crucial. The European Union discovered this in 2006 when their prices went to zero. And I think one of the challenges right now in the Chinese market that started in 2017, um, the, the biggest question at the moment is, can China get their monitoring and data collection system to work? Um, I think another lesson is being that, that a cap and trade without price caps and price floors is um, at some point going to lose political support. Um, it's either um, the, the, the environmental community is going to be upset because the prices are too low or the firms are going to be upset when the prices are too high. So this model where you pair a cap and trade with price caps and price floors, almost a hybrid system between a carbon tax and a cap and trade, uh, seems to uh, gain a lot of traction. I think those are two um, uh, pretty crucial lessons that we've learned over the last two years. Um, in terms of its momentum, the, many countries are actually starting cap and trade markets. Like South Korea now has one. There's um, there's there's also carbon taxes, by the way, in in in, in other countries. It's it's in the U.S. It's a political uh, no no at the moment, uh, but the U.K. is a carbon tax. Um, British Columbia, Alberta. And believe it or not, Washington state is going to vote. The Senate is going to vote on a proposal for a carbon tax later this year. Um, so it's not completely unthinkable that at the state level, you might even see some push for carbon taxation. Uh, the big benefit would be it is just a lot simpler than a cap and trade system. Would you see these systems expanding to cover more and more of the United States, regardless of what happens at the federal level? I would, I believe so. I think a number of Western states have expressed renewed interest in joining the, the California um, trading system. Um, Pennsylvania has been going back and forth, but there's some interest in joining Reggie. Um, so I, I do believe that we'll see these um, current two trading systems expand a little. Um, that said, 
um, it's very unlikely that the states by themselves will cover the whole U.S. in 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 uh, in, in a single cap and trade system. That needs federal coordination. Let me ask you just a naive question as we as we finish up here. What what makes a state like Virginia want to volunteer to join a cap and trade program? Well, I think it's a the states that there's many states where in which govern governors or the legislatures have pledged to uh, keep, keeping to the the Paris promise, the Paris Climate Accord, regardless of the federal administration's stance on this. So to make these um, statements credible, um, it's a cap and trade system is actually one of the easier, more cost effective ways. Uh, to actually make good in that promise. So I think it's, it's just a practical way of um, um, achieving those, those ambitions. All right, Arthur, thanks very much for talking. Sure, my pleasure. Today's guest has been Arthur Van Bentham, Senior Fellow with the Climate Center and Assistant Professor of Business Economics and Public Policy at the Wharton School. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to Energy Policy Now. To get the latest energy policy news, research, and information on events from the Climate Center, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. 